0: Um, God has, has over the last few weeks been growing our church. We're seeing some new faces. It's been really fun. Our, our community groups are multiplying. We're seeing some of our ministries expanding. And I just want to say to everybody who is faithfully serving in one of our ministries, we're just, we're really grateful for you. We really, we really believe that ministry is a team sport. This is not like one of those deals where a couple of us are going to do all the work. Um, that would be really hard, but also really sinful because, Uh, Jesus talks about the church like it's his body with a bunch of different members and that's all of us And so I just want to say thank you to everyone who has leaned in and is serving We're going to be calling more of you to jump in and lean in and serve in ways and I want to say uh, One of our convictions pastorally to everyone who is serving on any team I know that looks different from community groups to nursery serve crew and all all the ministries that we've got going on um, I just I just want to say our conviction is not that we would build a crowd of volunteers It's really not what we want to do. What we want to do is we really want to work for and fight for a leadership community where we know one another and we love one another and we're serving one another as we serve the church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kick off our leadership community gatherings. And the first one is going to be Sunday night, November 12th. That's at 5 p.m. right here. And this is our hope. We're going to worship and we're going to pray and we're going to teach and train in a way that serves the people that are serving the church. And so I think this is going to be really good for us. I am really excited about it. Okay? So I hope you'll come and be a part of that. Let me just say, if you're not serving and you're like, but I want to serve and I want to get connected, you're welcome to come to this. This would be a great thing for you to be at. All right? Andrew, come on, buddy. It's awesome. Hey, good morning.
1: It's great to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 is where we're going to be. If you're new to the Bible, uh, let me say a couple things. 1 John is in the near the very, very back, almost at the very end of your Bible, so that's an easy way to find it. And I want to say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe you're, you're a, a doubter or a skeptic, you're wrestling with some of the claims of Christianity, uh, and you're, you're wondering, do I belong here? Yeah, you do belong here. We love that you're with us. None of your questions are off limits, so thanks for being with us and uh, we're, we're happy to walk with you any way that we can. Uh, a couple things just by way of family business before we jump in. Uh, some things that have been really exciting for us uh, over the last month and a half, almost coming up on two months of being in this facility has been the ways that God has grown the church, both numerically and in some depth and adding new leaders. And so I want to take a minute and just really celebrate what God is doing. There's so much that we could be thankful for. Uh, We're seeing more people show up on a Sunday, and here's why that matters. Not because we are trying to build this giant machine of a church just so that we can brag about how big it is, Uh, We live in a place where lots and lots of people don't really know the real Jesus and have never experienced the real gospel, and we're getting a chance to talk about him and that gospel with them. We're seeing more people that have been hurt by the church and uh, haven't been in church for years, and now they're coming back. Maybe that's you. And we're really glad that you're with us. And for whatever reason, God has allowed you to be here. And we're excited to walk out as you kind of re-enter uh, this thing called Christianity. Um, so there's so much to celebrate. Even if we look at our finances as a congregation, I'm excited about the trend of where we're headed. Uh, excited about all that God is doing. There's just so much that we can celebrate. And so with that, here's what this means. We need more help on a Sunday. Uh, some of you are serving throughout the week. Some of you, uh, many of you serve on Sunday already. But here's the reality I'm going to throw this number out. We need 100 new volunteers. 100 new volunteers. Yeah, someone's, yes, okay. The guy, I was like, who is clapping? Uh, Andy McLeod is back there clapping because he helps oversee our surf crew and he needs 100 of you uh, to come volunteer and help. So I was like, man, that's someone's really excited about this. Here's the deal. If you are not serving in any way, typically the only people that hear the words that I'm saying right now are the people that are serving in like three or four capacities already. If you are not serving at all and this is where you're showing up on Sundays, man, jump in. We need your help. Uh, We're a family, and there are chores to do. And what we're trying to create is a hospitable environment so that non-Christians that are connecting on Sundays can not have any other barrier but Jesus as they step in. So 100 of you, you need to volunteer. If you're not serving, I'm talking to you. let's just put to death consumerism. Let's put to death consumeristic Christianity. We don't need any more churches that have consumeristic Christians. We just don't need any more of those. What we need is a group of people that take it seriously and jump in and serve. So I need a hundred of you today to do that, Uh, and here's how you can do that. You can email hello at frontlinechurch.com, and we'll get that. Um, You can email, you can go to frontlinechurch.com slash serve and you can sign up to a specific area. If you don't know where to serve, just email us at hello at and we'll take care of it. If you don't want to do that, go out to these doors, and our connect area where the coffee is, just grab someone that looks like they know what they're doing, and ask them, you know, I want to plug in, how do I do that? You can do that with a connect card. Just please do it. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a thousand ways, right? I'm like trying to do it. Whatever you have to do, just we need a hundred of you to jump in and help. You're needed here. That's what I'm saying. All right. If you haven't f- found First John by now, you will never find it. So let me, let me pray for you. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that this is not um, a gathering of people that have just killed it all week following you. But this is a gathering of people that are in desperate, desperate need of your grace. And God, I, I want to thank you that you are the one coming towards us this morning. You are the one flagging us down. And so some of us walked in with sadness. We bring our sadness to you. Some of us walked in with anger. We bring our anger to you. Some of us walked in tired and overwhelmed. We bring that to you. Some of us walked in feeling joyful. We bring it to you. God, wherever we are today, we bring ourselves to you as best as we can. Would you move by the power of the Spirit? And I pray for real change today. That's not something I can do. That's not something that anyone in the room can do. We pray for Spirit-empowered change today. Set people free to love the way you love. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So my oldest daughter, Evie, uh, just turned six years old last week, which makes me feel a little bit old. And w- one of the things that was so fun is uh, when, when we found out we were pregnant with our first daughter, it was like, man, I cannot wait to see what she's going to look like. What is she going to look like? What, what is this child of ours? You know, my wife and me, what, what is this child going to look like? And, uh, and so with anticipation, I remember the day that she was born, and then she came out, and she looked like a little blue alien And I was like, oh, man, that's not what I expected. Uh, But then over time, over time, she started to uh, look like an actual human. And what was so, so fascinating and so fun is realizing that she, without even trying, instinctively, just started taking on family resemblances and family characteristics. Like, her ears are literally the size of my ears right now. My ears actually haven't grown an inch since I was born. I was born with this size of ears, and this is just what happened. So she got my ears, like Dumbo ears. It's the cutest in the world. I love it. Uh, she doesn't have a forehead. She's got a five head, and she can thank me for that. Uh, so Burkharts just have big, giant foreheads. And, uh, and then she, but she's, she's like a miniature version of me, but cute because of my wife. And it's so fun to watch her because there are times where she'll be debating or arguing about something. And I'm like, where did you learn to do that? Oh, you just instinctively took on parts of my personality. Her laugh and some of the things, it's just, it's so similar to me, it's almost freaky. Uh, my, my second daughter, Eleanor, she's uh, three and a half, and she's like a miniature version of my wife. In fact, there are times where I'll be driving in the car, and I'll look back, and I'll look at Eleanor, and then I'll look at my wife, and they have the same facial expression at the same time. Uh, And then our youngest, Bear, we don't know what he's going to look like. He's six weeks old. With that name, he better turn out okay. Uh, If he looks anything like I did in junior high, I looked like an uncoordinated skeleton with skin stretched over it, and so I'm a little nervous about him having that manly of a name and looking like I did in junior high. So, uh, but here's what I'm saying. You, You get this. You instinctively know this. You don't need me to tell you. Kids look like their parents. They take on the family resemblance. They don't have to work at it. They don't have to try. It's just something that naturally happens as they grow. And that concept, that idea, is one of the the concepts that John is trying to get us to see in 1 John. That there are two types of people, and this is where he gets really bold in the letter, and he starts making uh, almost outrageous claims, but they're beautiful claims. He says, there are only two types of people in our world. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or not. doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Wherever you're coming from, there are only two types of people in the world. Children of God and children of the world. Children of God, these are the people that have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. People that are now looking to Jesus to form their entire life around him. Looking to him for ultimate meaning and significance. right? And then there's children of the world. These are people that either in this room or in our city have rejected God and are, instead of building their lives around Jesus, they're building their lives around themselves, trying to find ultimate meaning and significance within. And what John is saying is, how do you know which one you are? Are you a child of God, or are you a child of the world? Now, let me pause there for a minute. That's a really important question, especially in the Midwest, and even more so in Oklahoma. Are you a child of God, or are you a child of the world? Why is that an an important question? Because so many people in Oklahoma, so many people claim to be Christians that don't really have an understanding of who Jesus is or what he's done, right? Now, I get it. There are atheists, there are agnostics, there are people that aren't Christians. Maybe you're here today and we're glad that you're with us, but there are so many people you ask them, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? Oh, you know, my dad was Baptist, or I grew up going to the Methodist church, or I occasionally attend church, so I'm a Christian, so the answers that are given it's like there's this disconnect between are you a child of God? Yeah, I am, but I don't really know what that means. And what John wants us to know is how do you know which category you fit in? Are you a child of God or a child of the world? And here's what he's going to say. Children of God take on the family resemblance. There are just things about God the Father that start to show up in their lives. Now, he's been talking about a lot of characteristics, a lot of family traits, but two keep circling over and over again. Uh, One of them is holiness. Now, some of you, when you hear the word holiness, you get freaked out. It kind of reminds you of growing up with that man-centered, heavy-handed religion that you grew up with. Or or maybe it reminds you of a Christian that you knew that was kind of demanding, be more, do more, try harder. So you hear the word holiness, and it scares you because you, you really were crushed under the weight of trying to be holy, and you couldn't do it. That's not what John means when he says holiness. When he talks about holiness, he's talking about being set apart. What he's talking about is when Jesus' love collides into a human heart, it starts to change that person from the inside out. And it might be slow and it might be over time, but that person starts to change, right? Holiness. And then the second idea, it's actually related to that, the second family trait that children of God take on is love. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is John's focus in 1 John chapter 3, this idea of love as being one of the family resemblances to help you know if you're a child of God. So I have three things that I want you to see, and I'll, I'll just give you the, the heads up on where we're headed. The first one is going to sound very basic to you. You're going to hear it and go, yeah, that's, I've got it. The second one, I think, is actually going to take you by surprise a little bit. It might even startle you in how John phrases the second thing. And then the third thing that I want you to see, I think is gonna give you hope. Hope that you need and I need to actually live this stuff out. So that's where we're headed. Uh, here's the first thing that I want you to see. The importance of love. The importance of love. If you're with me, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. And the first 10 verses He's been talking about this idea of holiness. If you follow Jesus, then your life is going to start looking different than the world. And in verse 10, he makes a shift, and he's now going to start talking about love. Here's what he says. He says, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then look at what he says. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he's gonna give us this old story from Genesis chapter four of Cain and Abel. Some of you are familiar with this story. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers whoever does not love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him now let me tell you why this passage is so important because John is speaking with such clarity and force and honesty and what he's trying to get us to see is I want you to know where you stand Am I a child of God or a child of this world, a child of the devil? I want you to know where you stand. And one of the defining characteristics of real Christianity, if not the defining characteristic of real Christianity, is love. Not just love for God, which is obviously important, but love for people. What John is saying is so clear. He's saying that there's no optional way of living. You either live a life of hatred like Cain, or you live a life of love. And this is how you know if you're a child of God or a child of the world. Look at with, with the clarity and the, the boldness with which he's speaking. In verse 11, he says, if you don't love, you're not of God. In verse 14, he says, the way you know that you've passed out of death and into life is how? By your love. At the very end of verse 14, he says, if you don't love, you abide in death. So love is a big deal, the importance of love. It's such a big deal that it's one of the primary family traits that we take on as real Christians. You just love, not just with God, but with other people, both in the church and in the city. Now, this is not a new idea or a new concept. It's not like John is inventing this idea that love is really important. He's actually regurgitating things that he heard Jesus tell him. Uh, in, In John 13, listen to the words of Jesus. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, that's not a new commandment. That's actually a really old commandment. But here's the new part of it. He puts a spin on it. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the love that I've had for you, that's now the paradigm with which you are to love. And then look at what he says, and this is, this is big. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How are they going to know? How is the world that is watching going to know who are the real children of God or who are the children of the world? He says, they will know you by your love. That's how they're going to know. Isn't that fascinating that it's, he, he doesn't say your theology. Theology is a big deal, by the way. You should have good theology. But it's not, hey, they're going to know you by your theological prowess here's the reality. You could have incredible theology that rivals that of men like Jonathan Edwards, but if you don't have love, John says, I don't think you know God. He doesn't even point to holiness. He doesn't say, or or like, you know, being obedient, keeping all the commands and trying really hard. He doesn't say, listen, you can know, uh, know a real Christian by the ones that are serious about keeping the rules. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you'll know them by their love. You can be really serious about keeping all the rules, but if you don't have love, John's going to say, I think you might still be in darkness rather than in the light. The importance of love. This is a big deal. It's how we know if we're taking on the family resemblance of love that we actually belong to God, that we are the children of God. Now here's what I want to do in this moment. I don't know if you feel the, the temptation to do this too. I want to justify myself now. If love is such a big deal, and it's the thing that kind of should be evident in my life if I am a child of God, then I want to look within, and I start to examine my own life, and I think, yeah, I think I am a person of love. I, I treat people with respect. When I'm walking down the street, I smile at people. I'm polite to my waiter or waitress. Even, like, when they screw up my order, I'm try, I'm, I try to be polite. I think I'm a person of love. Maybe you're thinking the same thing. In fact, I, I, I would want to do this, but let's not do it out loud, but if I were to take a poll and just say, are you a person of hatred or a person of love? How many people in the room do you think would actually say, you know, I've been thinking, I really am a person of hatred. I don't really live a life of love. I'm a person of hatred. I'm like Cain, and I just want to kill people, right? Uh, It's crazy because almost everybody in our culture, Christian or not, will not think of themselves as a person of hatred. Love is a value in our culture. Most people are gonna think of themselves as a loving person, or at least a, uh, try to be a loving person. Most of you, even if you didn't live a life of love, wouldn't know it, right? Because you just assume, yeah, that, that, those are the, the, the really bad people like Cain. We just wanna justify ourselves. So here's the question. How do we know if we have the love that John is talking about? Because I love a lot of things. Let's just acknowledge for a minute that there's a lot of different types of loves. Um, I love barbecue, I love it. I I don't like barbecue, I love barbecue. Uh, Even more than I love barbecue, if I've got money in my bank account and I've got a free weekend, I will be smoking meat. I promise you that, I guarantee it. I love to smoke meat. There's nothing that like deals with my stress like smoking a pork butt for 12 hours. I don't know why, it just does something for my soul. I love the Pacific Ocean, which is a bummer because I live in Oklahoma but I love the Pacific Ocean. I, I absolutely love it. When I get there and I get my feet in the water, there's something that happens that I can't describe. I, I just, I love it. I don't like it. I love it. I love the mountains, which again, you know, i are seeing a trend here. Um, I love Oklahoma. Um, I, I also love my, my wife and my kids. Like, I, I didn't think I would have the capacity to love as many human beings the way I do, but now as I have my wife and my kids, this, there's something that, my, my, my ability to love has been expanded. So am I a person of love? Is this the love that John is talking about? Well, here's the second thing I want you to see. What is love? Because John is not gonna just allow us to live off of our own cultural assumptions and definitions of what we think love is. He's going to tell us what love is. He's told us, here's the importance of it. It's how you know that you're a child of God if you have it. Now, what is it? Here we go. He's gonna define. Look at 1 John three, sixteen. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. L- l- let me read that one more time. He says, by this we know love. How? What is it? Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. John is giving us a definition of love, and here's what it is. It's not sentiment. It's not a feeling It's not just this emotion that you have or words that you say. John is saying, here's love. It's sacrificial action for the good of another person. In fact, every time that John talks about love, almost every time in this book, it's connected to this idea of giving, that Jesus loved, so he gave. In fact, he says it right here. He says, we know love because Jesus gave his life by laying it down for us. The most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. You can't have real Christian love apart from giving. Those two go together. It doesn't matter how many times you say I love you. It doesn't matter how many times that you, you kind of feel sentiment in your heart for another human being. Uh, what, what John is saying is real love is defined because we know Jesus has given us his life and now we ought to do the same and love by laying our lives down for the brothers and for the sisters sacrificial action for the good of another person, not sentiment, not just a feeling. Uh, John Stott, he says this. He, He was a guy that was a pastor and wrote a bunch of books and commentaries. He has a commentary on this book that was really helpful, and let me just quote from him. He says, hate is negative. It seeks the other person's harm and leads to activity against him, even to the point of murder. His point is, if you have hate in your heart, that's not a seed that will refuse to grow. That hate always grows and it turns into action. Now that might not result in murder, but all murder started with hate as the seed, right? It leads to harming other people, either with your actions or with your words or without acting. But then he goes on to say this, love, on the other hand, is positive. It seeks the other person's good and look, leads to activity for him even to the point of self-sacrifice love leads to sacrifice. And then Stott goes on to say this. He says, the self-sacrifice of Christ is not just a revelation of love to be admired. It is an example to copy. In other words, here's what he's saying. Real Christianity is, it's not just in seeing the love that Jesus has had and laying his life down for us, but it's in receiving that same love that that becomes the paradigm by which I live in love. The script that is now handed to me that I very supernaturally by the power of God start to live out of is Jesus loved me so much that he laid his life down for me. Therefore, I'm going to love and lay my life down for others. John says that's how you know that you're a child of God if you do that. Sacrificial action for the good of another person. But here's the thing. John doesn't stop there. Because what honestly does that mean? How do you define sacrificial action? If you go, okay, uh, love is really important. Real Christians love other people. Love is sacrificial action for the good of another. How do I know that I'm doing that? Well, here's where it gets startling. I think this might shock you in how John defines what sacrificial action looks like. So let me go there. Look at 1 John 3, 16 again. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John shocks us because he says, you know you're a child of God by love. Love is sacrificial action, and here's really where he he draws the line. He says, Real Christians are marked by this profound love for the poor and the vulnerable and those in society that cannot help themselves. That is one of the primary evidences that the love of God abides in your heart. Love for the poor. How interesting is that? If you see someone that has a need in the church or outside of the church, And you fail to meet that need. You close your heart off against him. John's going, man, I don't even know how the love of God could abide in your heart because one of the things that happens to a Christian is they're so moved by the love of God that it then opens up their hands and their life to lay it down for other people. And that looks like giving worldly possessions away to those that need it. He's talking about love for the poor. This is fascinating. In fact, what John is saying is not a new idea. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15. He's rephrasing Deuteronomy. I know that that's your favorite book of the Bible. You you can't wait to get home to read Deuteronomy. I get it. Uh, Let me just quote from Deuteronomy 15. This is so good. God says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, or shut your hand against your poor brother. What should you do? But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. What does that mean? Whatever it may be. Okay, what do I give my brother, my sister? Whatever he needs. Whatever it may be. You go, oh, that seems painful. That seems difficult. Um, I think I could do that, but I'd do it begrudgingly. Look at the next line. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Here's what he's saying. If you see someone that's poor, God is saying, you have to meet the need. You've got to open up your heart. If you have the possessions, if you have the stuff, you've got to then release that to the one that needs it. Whatever they need. Your house. Your cars your money, your time, your possessions, whatever they may need. So I'm reading through the Bible this year, and one of the things that I'm trying to notice in particular, one of the things I set out to try to notice as I read, is how often God speaks about the poor and the most vulnerable in society. And it is so frequent, it's, it's almost blowing my mind how much this is a value of God's. Listen, God loves everyone, but he has a special concern for the poor and for those that cannot help themselves. A special concern. And by the way, if that offends you, can you just remember that our story, if you're a Christian, is that we were spiritually bankrupt and he gave us what we need? So he actually cares about people that don't have what they need and can't provide for themselves. And he's constantly saying, love the poor, serve the poor, go to the poor, help the poor out, give away your stuff to the poor. It's a value of God's. In fact, over and over, God will say in in different ways, you cannot have a relationship with me if you don't also have a relationship with the poor marked by justice and mercy and compassion and sacrificial love. You can't. Because to know me and love me is to also know and love the poor. It's a big deal to God. In fact, this was such a big deal to the early church that uh, it had profound effects on how they grew. Historians, both Christians and non, have for years tried to ask and figure out the question, how did the early church grow so rapidly? It was one of the smallest religions in the first century. There were dozens of religions. This one was definitely the one that was the most oppressed and the most persecuted and the most that was trying to be shut down. How did the early church grow from a couple people to, by the year 300, there are like 34 million people that claim Jesus is alive and followed him? So historians have, have wondered and, and kind of tried to figure out, and both non-Christian and Christian historians come back to, over and over and over again, one of the reasons why the early church grew was because of their incredible sacrificial love for the poor. In fact, in the fourth century, uh, there's a guy named, a uh, Roman emperor, Julian, who historians refer to as Julian the Apostate. This is a guy that grew up in the church and then rejected Jesus and rejected Christianity. I think his uncle was Constantine. So he had like this really great Christian heritage, walked away from all of it, and he's writing a letter to his friend in the fourth century complaining about the generosity of Christians. Let me read you a quote out of the letter. Do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? And then look at what he says. It is disgraceful that the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. While everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. He's complaining. He's like, man, it's ridiculous. It's shameful. They're supporting their own poor and our poor that aren't even in the church, and we're not even supporting our own poor. It's shameful. He's complaining about the generosity of Christians. This was one of the reasons why the early church grew so rapidly, because it was finally... Here's this religion where you don't have to have a certain status and culture or society to be a part of it. It's really, really attractive. Hey, can I just ask you, what would it look like if you took this seriously? What would it do to our church if we became a group of people, five to 600 people strong, that said, we are going to build our lives around the sacrificial love for other people, specifically the poor and the, the most vulnerable in our society? What would that do if you got a vision for this? This could change our entire city. What would it look like if you actually took this reality seriously that your house is not your house, it belongs to Jesus? That your money is not your money, it belongs to Jesus? That your possessions, they are not your possessions, they belong to Jesus? What would it look like if you got a vision for giving all of your stuff in such a way that anyone that has a need, you you drift towards them to meet the need rather than quickly closing your heart down to not meet it? Let, Let me give you a couple ideas, a couple stories. There's a family here at Frontline South that lives this passage out in ways that have brought me to tears. They just, when I read this, their names pop up into my head. Uh, They had a minivan, a Honda Odyssey, that was uh, pretty nice. And they were on a two-year plan to buy a brand new Honda Odyssey. Uh, They've kind of done the whole Dave Ramsey thing, and they've paid off all their debt, and they're really cautious with their money. Um, And they're cautious with their money so that they can be radically generous so they're on this two-year plan to buy a new mini- minivan and they hear about another family in their community group that has a lot of kids and has a minivan but their minivan's breaking down and, and it's starting to fall apart and so they're, they're, in the, they're in the process of trying to buy it but they don't have a lot of cash. And so what, what happens is they change their two-year plan and instead of going out and buying a brand new minivan which they really had the money to do, what they did is they took the minivan that they were going to sell for cash and they actually went and put new tires on it dumped a couple thousand dollars into it, getting all all of the stuff repaired and making sure it's in great shape and gave it away to this other family and then went and bought a, a less nice, less new minivan, still an upgrade, but less nice than what they were looking at. That's what John is talking about. Sacrificial love. They saw a need and they said, you know, we can meet that need. It'll change my plans. I mean, we won't get what we wanted, but we'll be able to help you. They blessed the family. Here's another story. Some of you are like, man, I'd love to do that. I don't have money. (laughs) I've not paid out debt. By the way, don't wait to pay debt off to start living generously, right? Because there are other ways that you can live generously even if you can't financially, which by the way, most of you should be able to do this. So here's here's another story. If you're like, man, I don't have money. How how do I? You can actually live a life of love and give yourself away even if you don't have a lot of possessions. There's a guy named Bob Goff. Uh, Yeah, I always get someone go, yeah you know, whoo, clap, Bob Goff, he wrote a book called Love Does, uh, and it's just wild and crazy book of Bob loving people in ridiculous ways, right, it, it, you should read it, it'll keep your heart young, um, and, and so here's, here's, here's what he's doing in this book, he basically, if you don't know Bob Goff, he, uh, he, be, he he's a lawyer that basically became famous by creating these medals. you know, medals that you pin on people, he created these medals, and every day he finds someone, and he pins a medal on them, And he just honors them and celebrates them and loves them. And so this is, he kind of just became famous because he does all this crazy, ridiculous stuff for other people. And so they, it got so big that like they started inviting him to speak at these large conferences. And at one point it was so crazy, he was speaking at this huge conference and a limousine picked him up from the hotel. And he gets in the back of the limousine. He's like, "Oh man, I hate this. This is I don't want to ride in a limousine to the conference, you know." And so he he's hating everything about it. He starts to engage the driver of the limo. "Tell me about yourself." what's your story, you know, trying to get his mind off the fact that he's in the back of a limousine, and the driver starts telling him, yeah, you know, I'm working three jobs, trying to care for my family, doing night school, I'm just trying to, I want to provide my kids with a better life than what I had, and, you know, just started sharing his story and what he's doing, and Bob in the back, he goes, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car, and the guy, like, "Er," pulls over, you know, like, what's going on, and then Bob's like, get out, get out, get out of the car for just a minute, and the guy actually gets out. I have no idea what he was thinking, but he actually gets out of the car. Bob goes around, and he goes, hey, man, have you ever been in the back of one of these? And he's like, no, like, I'm the driver. I've never been in the back of a limo. And he's like, oh, you, you got to try it. Get in the back. Get in the back, man. A- and the guy's like, no, 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 I can't allow it. Like, my employer, it's not safe. And he's like, hey, man, I'm a lawyer, and I'm speaking at a very large conference. I make a ton of money. If I wreck this, I can buy a new limo. Get in the back, man. Give me your hat. Give me your hat. So the guy gives him his hat, gets in the back of the seat. Here's Bob Goff, the one that was supposed to be uh, riding in the limo to the conference that he's speaking at. He's in the front seat wearing the limo driver's cap and he just drives him to the thing, and then it, Bob gets out, and he escorts the guy out of the car, and right before the guy uh, walks off, he stands in front of him, he looks him in the eyes, and he goes, you are the real hero, man. You are the real hero. You're working three jobs. You're providing for your family. He pins a medal on him, and he's like, man, I bless you in Jesus' name. I love you. I'm proud. Of you. you are the real hero. You're the one that should be speaking at this conference. And the guy is just in tears, weeping. Now, if you were to ask that guy, hey, what do you think of Christians? What do you think you would say? Man, I've never felt more loved than when I was around a Christian. That's the most loved I've ever felt when I was with a Christian. I think it's safe to say that the people that were with Jesus felt the same way. I have never felt so loved. When I was with Jesus, that's the most loved I've ever felt. I just felt so loved. He gave his life away from me constantly, not just by laying it down, but in a, in a thousand other ways. See, we can do this. What would it look like to love your waiter or waitress and tip them more than your meal cost? Oh, you say, that's not, that's, that's not wise. That's, Man, generosity sometimes is, is just crazy. You just give stuff away. What would it look like to, instead of going on a vacation, to, sell, to take that money and bless a family? What would it look like to provide for the poor? Why, how could you do this? What would it look like? If this got a hold of your heart, this could change our city. This is what John is saying love is. Here's the third thing I want you to see, and I'll wrap it up with this. How do we become people of love? How do we become people of love? Let me, let me ask you this question. Do you want to be this way? by the way, it's okay to like nod your head yes if you want to and shake your head no if you don't. Do you want to be this way? It's hard to know of anybody that would go, I just, I'm not interested. Here's my problem. My problem is that I oftentimes don't even see the needs because I'm so enamored and obsessed with my own life that I don't even get the chance to see the need and then fail to meet it. If our lives are so in this flurry of acquiring stuff so that we can hold it like this, then we're not even seeing needs to be able to meet them. See, the problem with me is not that I don't know that I should love like this. The problem is that I have a heart issue with this. I was talking to my daughter this week, and we were talking about uh, her giving a, a toy away to someone, and, and generosity, and we're processing that, and she said these words. She said, Papa, I want to be generous. I just don't want to give away anything that I like. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, me too. Me too. I want to be generous. I just don't want to give away anything that I like. The answer to becoming people of love is not more education. It's not better policies and better systems so that we can create a culture that's just really loving. It's not even more human effort. If you walk out of this room and you go, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna love more. You're not gonna be able to live a life of love. So what's the answer? John tells us, before he tells us what love is, he tells us the answer of how we become people of love. Look at chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let me read it one more time. By the way, he breaks out into poetry. Commentators have noticed that there's a dramatic shift in chapter three, verse one, and out of nowhere. He goes from being very clear and very bold and very crystal clear on what he's, and then in chapter three, verse one, he breaks out into poetry, and he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, you and I, should be called the children of God, and so we are. It's more than a title. In the Greek, I wish you could read it. It's better. In the Greek, it says, behold, behold look. And then the next line, from what country is this love, is literally how it reads in the Greek. Where did this love come from? How do you explain this love? Here's what John is saying, that God, the creator of all things, would make enemies his sons and his daughters. How do you explain that? Where did that love come from? That God would lay his own life down for us in Jesus to forgive us of everything we've ever done. And then, after doing that, as the judge, he slams the gavel down and he says, Because of what I've done, you are forgiven. And then he takes the robe off, he gets off of the bench, and he gets down on his knees and he says, And now you are my son and my daughter. Criminals, enemies, he makes them not just friends, but sons and daughters. Where did this love come from? Then how do you become a person of love? It's by experiencing and seeing the love that the Father has had for you. When you get a hold of that, it will change the way that you love. It's not by trying harder, doing more. It's by seeing the love that God has had for you. Do you know how I know that you don't get this? Because if you got this, you would be jumping up and down on your chair right now. This is old hat, isn't it? This is old hat. It's like, yeah, that's really sweet that God did that. I'm glad he loves me like that. Let's go to lunch. I think some of you have forgotten the power of this love and what it does to a person when you receive it. When you think about you and your sin and your shame, he would say, you're mine, and I love you, and I died for you, and I made you a son or a daughter by grace. That changes you. To help you see a glimpse of how we should respond, I want to show you a video of a little girl who got news that she was getting adopted. And I want you to watch her and that should start to remind you of some of the joy that we should be having as followers of Jesus when we think about what God has done for us. So take a look at this video. This is like the biggest thing that's ever happened to me. Eleven-year-old Tana just spent the last two years wishing the judge would make her foster parents her forever parents.
0: Caring, loving, they take really good care of me. And then last Monday, her friend, Miss Jackie. We're just little friends, we're just little buddies. The office manager at
1: her school walked in with amazing news. I grabbed her shoulders and I just said, have you heard the news, baby? Have you heard, honey, you get your forever family. My heart was so happy. It was like, ah, it was like screaming. That's a great story, isn't it? Our story is so much better. <laughs> this is so much better. You were dead in your sin, and God made you alive by grace. You were a child of wrath, and he made you a child of his love. Adoption is something that he does, not something you do. You didn't have the idea. He adopted you. How does that not, when you just let that sink deep into your soul, that changes the way that you live. Possessions become less important. Cars and homes and stuff. And our lives become one of seeing the love that the fathers have for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are, to laying our lives down for the brothers and the sisters that need it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, This is what God is offering you today. Some of you in the room, you have told yourself privately, dialogue with yourself that you've sinned too much and you need to earn your place. That's a lie. Jesus today is offering you his life as a gift. He wants to literally forgive you of everything you have ever done. Everything. Today, he wants to forgive you. You've got to stop being more powerful than God. He wants to forgive you. He is greater than you. And he loves you. He's moving towards you today. So, man, come to him. Empty and broken and in need. Uh, Those of you that are Christians, can I just say this? I, I would love to give you, you know, five, six points of application for how to live this out. But you don't need that because you guys have more creative ideas than I do. Can you just grab a hold of this truth? And in the power of the Spirit and with great creativity, start asking the Lord, how do I love like this where I lay my life down for other people? And then whatever the Lord brings to mind, just do it. If five to six hundred people in South Hoke KC got a glimpse of this, it would change our city. It would change our city. And we really would be a church that loves God and loves people and pushes back darkness.